like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. And this episode will be finishing up our look at Dick's 1966 novel, Now Wait for Last Year. Now, where we left off in the previous episode, we saw how Eric Sweetsent was forced to take uh, the, the, the time-shifting drug, JJ180. Now, it's a little bit of a... a a question at this point in the story whether movement through time is hallucinogenic or perhaps they're really shifting through time but the evidence seems to be pointing to that people when they use this drug they shift through time but they shift through different parallel uh, realities and different potential futures and, and different potential pasts so there's a lot of parallel earths that people can move through uh, using this drug JJ 180 it's unfortunately highly addictive Kathy Sweetsent, Eric Sweetsent's wife, has f- snuck it into his drink, forcing him to become also addicted to the drug, an uh, addiction which is very quickly fatal to people who, who, who get caught into it. So he uses uh, the, the drug to move to a different time period in which he's able to find uh, a cure. He also finds out that there's a potential for a sol- of solving Earth's biggest conflict and Earth's biggest problem, and that is that they're tied into an unwinnable war allied with the fascistic uh, starmen. In fact, the way out for Earth is to ally with their current enemy, the Reeks, who, although look very weird and have six limbs and they're kind of insect people, they are actually, you know, just better allies, better people. They, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones that Earth should have allied with instead of the starmen. So Eric, when the drug wears off, he goes back in time. He doesn't go back, goes back to his initial time, but he actually gets a little bit phased, time shifted, and he's about a year into the future, and he sees a future in which the starmen have attacked Earth, have put Earth into an occupation in retaliation for, for the UN Secretary General, Gino Molinari, and other of his allies for working with, for working with the Reeks to try to... to get out of this alliance with the Starmen. In retaliation, they've occupied Earth, forcing, leading Earth to a, what's potentially a, a multi-year occupation by a more powerful alien force. But it also leads the hope for a long-term salvation for, for Earth as they can get they can get on the right side of this, this, this war. So that's where we left off in the, uh, at the end of chapter 11. As chapter 12 begins, Eric is trying to escape the surveillance state and the occupation of the Starmen on Earth. He doesn't have documents. He doesn't have passage documents that allow him to move around. He, you know, is at risk of being executed if he gets caught. So he eventually is able to talk a cab, a lot of travel by cab in this novel, actually. But he talks the cab into taking him back to Detroit, to the Hazeltine Corporation, uh, where he hopes to perhaps maybe use JJ 180 to get back to his normal time. However, 
Before he's able to get back to his own time or solve his problem or to get to safety, he is intercepted by Starman, who are about ready to kill him. At that very moment, though, he is saved by his future self because he has shifted into the future only about a year. So his other self, one year into the future, is still alive and knows that he's going to be there. So he meets up with them, kills the Starman that are threatening him, threatening to execute him right, right there on the street. And then they're able to have a conversation these two versions of Eric Sweetsen one year apart. And that's going to be a major theme for the last final chapters of the novel, where he's really communicating with himself in different time periods in order to find out the best way to solve his political problems, but also his personal problems that are really going to increasingly dominate the later pages of the story. One of the most important things he learns from his, his self from one year later is that he is able to, to use his knowledge. He has the knowledge of the, of the, antidote to JJ 180 addiction and so it's not an unbreakable addiction um, because of these new technologies he's able to get from the future and he memorized the formula so he's able to use this to to free himself from addiction so he doesn't get hooked on this stuff but he can also potentially free his wife but that's not going to solve his problem what he learns is that the damage done to Kathy not just from the JJ 180 but from a lifetime of drug abuse is too great and her mental illness and her gradual debilitation over time is, is inevitable. And that's something he learns. And his future self has divorced Kathy and keeps an eye on her and things, but basically has ended that relationship because it's just too toxic and unsustainable. And he justifies abandoning Kathy to her psychosis, saying it's rough to be married to a woman with psychotic traits, as well as showing her physical deterioration. She's still my wife, our wife, under Phenazine sedation, she's quiet anyhow. You know, it's interesting that I, we, didn't pick it up. We were able to diagnose a case we're living with day in, day out. A commentary on the blinding aspects of subjectivity and overfamiliarity. It unfolded solely, of course, that tended to conceal its identity. I think eventually she'll have to be institutionalized, which I'm putting off, possibly until after the war's won, which it will be. End quote. Yeah, so yeah, I guess at this point he's still married. But later on, they, there is a version of Eric Sweetsent that divorces Kathy and abandons her basically to a life in, in a mental institution. Now, on to the political conversation that, that the two versions of Eric Sweetsent have. It, it basically revolved around how to get Earth out of this alliance with Lily Star and into an alliance with the Reeks. And what it's going to require is that the mole... Gino Molinari, the UN Secretary General, get in contact with a Rig named Degdel Il. That's his code name, but he's basically hiding out. He's in the Rig Intelligence Service, and he can be contacted. And he can be the one who can deliver messages to to his people and to begin the process of, of negotiating a truce between Earth and and the Rigs. So the suggestion is to take him to Tijuana to you know, hide him out there until Molinari can take him. At least that's what the future Eric Sweetsent um, talks about. He also talks a little bit about Molinari and what's he about. And we, we spent a lot of time in the last episodes talking about this 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 character, how he uses his illnesses to get out of, of, of to basically manipulate the political situation he's in, how he's essentially a moral person who's willing to sacrifice himself for the overall goodness of Terra. We don't quite know how he does it and how he maintains power for so long. And we start to learn a little bit more about that in this in this chapter, particularly about the deep conflict between Molinari and the Lily Starian ambassador, essentially, Ferensky. 
and how this, this is really a life or death struggle between these two personalities. And unless you can fully get around and understand Molinari, you're not going to be able to get him to really change his policy and to, and to kind of think of a new way to, to solve the geopolitical problems we're facing, that is, to, to enter into a new alliance with, with the Reeks. He says, But your main problem lies with Molinari. It's up to you to persuade him to visit Tijuana, to confer with Del Dal Il, and establish and hence established the first link in a chain of circumstances that's going to get Terra pride loose from Lestar and over to the Reeks without everyone being killed in the process. I'll tell you why it will be difficult. Molinari has a scheme. He's been involved in a personal struggle, man-to-man against Frensky. It's his masculinity, and he feels it's at stake. For him, it's not abstract. It's immediate and physical. And you saw the virile Molinari studying the videotape. That's his secret weapon, his V2. He's starting to throw in the healthy duplicates of himself in the ranks of parallel worlds. And as he knows, he's got quite a supply of them to draw on. His own psychology, his point of orientation is to dabble with death and he has somehow surmounted. In the confrontation with Minister Frensky, whom he fears, he can die a thousand times and still spring back. So what we have here is almost kind of like a cyclical situation. Now Molinari, he's also using JJ-180. He's using it in a different way in that he's kind of using it to kind of flip throughout parallel worlds to take copies of himself and bring them in. And sometimes these copies die and he can replace them. So that, that's kind of his plan to maintain power for as long as possible. That even if he's killed, he can bring in a new copy of himself. And he has enough kind of knowledge about how the, what the future is going to be that he's able to, to basically create a chain of genome Molinari's. And that's why there's a virile version and a sick version and a dead version that we met. Oh, we met all of these in previous chapters. It's not that they're simulacrum. It's actually there are different versions from different parallel realities. But this ends up creating kind of a cyclical relationship instead of a, a breakout. And this is something that you see a lot in Dick's fiction, is this the need to, to, to kind of disrupt a stagnant or cyclical political system or situation for something new. And I think this is partially why Dick was so fascinated by the frontier in a lot of his earlier works. And he never quite abandons his concept of, of the importance of a frontier even though he gets a little more pessimistic about it. But it's all about this kind of rebirth or a new path. And in this novel, that new path is the alliance with, with the Reeks, right? And the, an alliance with a species that's nothing like, doesn't look anything like humans. Maybe has more empathy, maybe is a much more empathic species than the Lily Star Men who are essentially just fascists and, and soulless and sea Terrans just as a resource to exploit. But they're so, the Reeks are so different, it's hard for people to, to see them as natural allies. And so that's going to be the big break, but it's something that Gino Molinari has to be pushed to because he's not going to get there on his own. And that's where Eric Sweetson's role is going to, to be, at least politically, at the end of the novel. Okay, not long after this conversation with future Eric, uh, he, he shifts back to his, to, to, it's 2055, to his normal timeline. So the drug finally fully wore out and he, I guess he got temporarily restabilized to his baseline position. And then he goes to find this, this Reek agent, this uh, Del Del Il. And he does find him and eventually stashes him in a hotel in Tijuana until he can work out a meeting between this guy and this, this bug creature, this uh, Del ill and and Gino Molinari so Eric then he deals with Kathy he meets up with Kathy who is staying in Tijuana at this point and 
she he gives her the the, the the antidote to the JJ 180 addiction that she has but Eric already knows that this is not going to solve her problems entirely that she's still going to be burdened with the you know the long-term consequences of a lifetime of drug use including JJ 180 and that her descent into psychosis is going to get worse and worse and he has confirmation from that from his future self so just getting her off the drug isn't really going to solve their problem and kind of the last we see of Kathy is kind of sad because she's holding out hope that a scheme she engaged in when she went into the past, when she was on the drug, of basically trying to, to give to Virgil an investment early on and then, and then at some point profiting from the future isn't going to work out because when you disappear in the past, so do the artifacts you bring with you, apparently. So I was wondering in the previous episode if... When she went back in time and she shifted to the future, did the robot stay behind? And apparently the robot wouldn't. It would all go back uh, or it would all disappear from there. So Kathy, her optimism is is, is misplaced. And, and she's, you know, it's, I think that's the last we see of her in the entire novel. She's talked about a lot, but it's the last we see of her. And it's quite, it's quite uh, depressing. The relationship is on the brink. They are openly discussing divorce. Um, and Eric knows that his future life, if he stays with with Kathy, is going to be one of, of misery. Okay, and then Eric gets news that Gino Molinari has, has died in Cheyenne. And this is directly connected to events we saw earlier in the novel when, um, before he left on his quest to, to meet up with Kathy and to try to find the antidote, he abandoned Gino Molinari as he was having a perinatal heart attack. And Eric said, you know, your other doctors will help you. And he went on his own thing. It seems a direct consequence of those events. His heart gave out and Eric wasn't there to, to save him, which is his big job. So um, the death of Gino Molinari is how chapter 12 ends. Now in chapter 13, we learn that this death really doesn't matter because Gino Molinari has already prepared a replacement for himself from a parallel timeline. This is the parallel timeline in which Gino Molinari became UN Secretary General but then was dethroned very early on, right? So there's there's some parallel realities where Gino Molinari never wins the election and they just kind of take this washed up politician and and bring him to their to their time. Uh, this one was one who won but was right, right, later displaced. And you know, there's a conversation with the doctors as they look over the body of the dead Gio Molinari, too, about how he's able to maintain this this kind of permanent dynasty uh, using JJ 180 as a way of bringing people back and, and kind of using this these parallel worlds. And also the question comes up about why he doesn't use artifork uh, organs. And this actually has a lot to do, it seems, with the law of the land, which means you, which says you can't have a simulacrum as your president. And the fear was that if the mole had too many artiforic organs, he could be declared like a simulacrum or declared not human fully. So there's a kind of an interesting question here about transhumanism and to, at what point do we stop being human? At what point are we more robot than, than man? as we kind of upgrade ourselves and, and, and repair ourselves. But these private citizens can do that because there's not that legal obligation that they be fully human. But it is apparently for, for politicians. So it doesn't matter, though, because Molinari can replace himself when one dies. And I, I think this is like the third iteration of Molinari that, that Eric then eventually meets. And they have what I think is their, their second to last or one of their last conversations together. 
But he's not doing this. This is an important point, and Dick insists on this. The mole is not doing this for his own benefit. He's doing it for the good for the good of humanity and to help them get through the war. And the comparison is made directly to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, of course, ran in an unprecedented four terms to help or won in four four successive terms to, tr you know, to try to get the United States through its crisis. Right. But the tradition was pretty firmly established that you don't run for more than two two terms as president and no one you know no one had a, done that until until roosevelt but he, he justified it through this idea that we need to have a stability of leadership over this crisis um, and that's that's sort of how molinari is is framing it quote he was not trying to be immortal a god he was simply interested in serving on his term of office what had happened to franklin d roosevelt in a previous major war was not going to happen to him. Molinari had learned from the mistakes of the past. He had acted accordingly in typical Piedmontese style. He had found a bizarre and colorfully idiosyncratic solution to his political problem. So with this new version of Molinari, Eric talks about this plan to contact the Riggs. The mole agrees to do this. And then they have a conversation about basically, you know, girls, essentially. They, t they talk about his wife and her future, and he's very pessimistic about his future with his wife. And Molinari recommends that he just get a younger girl. In fact, he sets he hooks sets him up. He says, "Call this girl. She's a young girl." And Molinari likes young girls. His own mistress is is like eighteen or nineteen. This is also another young girl, kind of like a minor actress or celebrity. And he and he gives her the number and says, "You know, check her out. You know, don't don't be burdened with this problematic wife." Actually, yeah, this girl is a relative of, of Molinari's own mistress. And it's actually in this conversation we get the title of the novel coming out, where Molinari scolds him for not pursuing this young girl that he's taken the, the pains to set him up with, saying, Has using that time travel drug scrambled your wits? You don't know you only got one tiny life, and that lies ahead of you, not sideways, not back. Are you waiting for last year to come again or something? End quote. Now we, we come all the way back to the theme of nostalgia, which runs throughout this whole whole novel. Most people, when they use JJ 180, they go to a past. They go. It's a very few people who go to the future, right? Again, I think there's this idea that we're pulled by the past, pulled by the our memories of the past. Sweet Sense's own relationship with his wife is is burdened by the past, previous conflicts, but also previous feelings of love, and and solidarity. We have old people who can't handle the future that they live in and try to create baby lands, which are precise, perfect replicas of of times 100 years earlier, right? The most famous of these is Virgil Ackerman's Washington 35, which is a whole basically reconstruction of, of Washington, how it looked in 1935. And this nostalgia for the past is a very perverse way of looking at the world, according to Molinari here. And I think this is Dick speaking to us that there, we do need to have this kind of Promethean spirit. And for that, it means looking into the future and understanding that our life is limited and we have only so much time to accomplish our goals. And those goals must be in the future. We can't always be dragged in into the past. And this conversation is going to be burden is going to burden Eric for the rest of the novel. For all intents and purposes, the plot, the, the geopolitical aspect of the novel is done. There, there's a little bit of a of a side thing going on with that rig that was stashed in a Tijuana hotel. But beyond that, there's really not much more to say. 
it's it's resolved that Gino is going to try Gino Molinari is try, going to try to make peace with the Riggs. That after a period of occupation by the Lily Starmen, eventually Earth will be free and peaceful, and, and a new, more cosmopolitan Earth is going to come out of that. It's going to take a hundred years, but it's going to come. Now, yes, it's just one possible future that Eric went to, but it's you know it seems all the evidence seems to drift around the, uh, something like this coming true. Certainly, the occupation by Lily Star is going to come. Uh, the victory in the war is going to come. All the different timelines seem to confirm this, all the ones that we've seen anyways. So most of the rest of the novel then is about Eric's uh, decision about what to do and his marriage problems. And the first thing he does is he looks up that girl that Gino Molinari told him about. And her name is, is uh, what's her name? Uh, Gary. Mrs. Garibaldi is her name. And he, Patricia Gary is how what she goes by, but Patricia Garibaldi is her, her full name. And he, so Gary is the stage name of this young aspiring actress. And he goes and she eventually invites him in. She doesn't really know who he is or why he's there. He just says, Gino Molinari sent me. And then they begin to have a conversation. And of course, in a conversation like this, one of the first things you'll be asked is, what is your career? What is your profession? And he says, I'm an art of surgeon. And she asks a question that maybe we never thought about if we read this this book. Um, but it's an important question and that is, why aren't you on the front lines? Why aren't you in a, in a military hospital? You know, we know what he does. His job is to keep old people alive. And he's he's been, he sold out his skills to keep an old guy who's lived his full life, more than a hundred years alive for as long as he wants. And we know he's gonna live for another hundred years thanks to art of work technology, right? Meanwhile, young people, presumably 18, 19, 20, this girl who's, I think she's 18 or 19, talks about her friends and relatives who have died in the front and their lives are not being saved because they don't have access to art of work doctors who can, who can save them. Um, and she asked the question, why aren't you serving in the front then? Why aren't you doing your duty? And this something Eric realized at this moment that he has been kind of wasting his life, keeping an old man alive rather than actually serving to preserve life or preserve young life. And he responds to this, what can I say except that maybe you've put your finger on the great central weak link in my life. Why it hasn't got a meaning, it should have. It seems to me at any time, anyhow, that keeping Gino Molinari alive somehow contributed to the war effort. But after all, he'd only done that a short time and gotten into it, not by his own efforts, but by Virgil Ackerman's. And we're reminded of Virgil Ackerman, who he has been keeping alive just so he can. And there's no reason to keep him alive, except that he wants to continue to sleep with young girls and live in his nostalgic representation of the past. It's a totally banal life that Virgil Ackerman has. You know, the business could pass on to his sons, but he doesn't really do that. There's. It's, it's a wasted life is what Eric realizes at that point. He has, he has not served humanity, hasn't served his family. He hasn't really served Kathy very well. And he starts to realize that his, his life has been wasted. And he gets this from this conversation with this, this young woman. Now, during this, while he's there, he gets a call from Molinari who does say that 
that rig that you stashed in the Tijuana motel, he's dead. He was killed by Lily Star um, agents. But he says, doesn't matter. We'll find other ways of contacting the Reeks, and th this alliance will get done. We'll get out of this alliance with the with the Lily Star men, and that's how chapter thirteen ends. Now, chapter fourteen, the final chapter of the book, is all about Eric Sweetsense's decision about what to do with his life from this point forward. One option is to do what his future selves are doing, and that is eventually abandoning Kathy, abandoning her to mental hospitals and suffering and you keep an eye on her you know calling the doctor once in a while keep it you know keep you know keeping one eye on her but basically abandoning her and divorcing her that's one option another option is to to kill himself right to to avoid the suffering of his life and this feeling of uselessness in his life by killing himself and another another option will be what he finally decides at the end, which is to to do something different and to actually invest in in Kathy and to commit to that and to make this very important choice that that we are not the creators of the world we live in, but we have to deal with that, right? We can't escape it, whether it's going into the past or by you know letting our our cruelty, our, our cruelest and most selfish inclinations take over. That at the end of the day, what's going to allows to survive a future that's not in our control is some degree of solidarity. Now, how does he come to this conclusion? Well, he go he, in chapter 14 is all set in Tijuana and in two different time periods. And now, the first thing he sees when he walks through the streets of Tijuana is poverty, particularly in the form of sex work. He meets a, a boy about 11 years old offering his seven-year-old sister to her her seven-year-old virgin as a as a prostitute and he doesn't take up on that of course but it's it's just the first of several scenes of of of, of poverty but he also sees life enduring you know in in a horrible situation not only war-torn earth but in Tijuana but but impoverished and and broken so that's the first encounter he has and he thinks about the past here. Quote, in a town where everything is legal, he thought, and nothing achieves worth, you are wretched back into childhood, placed among your blocks and toys with, with all your universe within grasp. The price of license is high, consists of a forfeit of adulthood. Yet he loved it there. The noise and the stirrings represented authentic life. Some people found all this evil. He did not. People who thought they knew, thought that were wrong. The restless roving bands and males who saw God knew what they themselves didn't know. Their striving was in was the general primal underurge of protoplasmic material itself. This irritable, ceaseless motion that once carried life out into the sea into the land, creatures of the land now and still roamed on with one street and down the other, and he went along with them. End quote. Um, so th there's a couple of things going on here, quite complex. One is this this pullback to the past and that one of the draws of the past is that the future is still unwritten at that point right you're not when you're by the time you're an adult right you feel there's not much you can do to change your life you're kind of stuck the decisions have been made but in the past one reason we get nostalgic for it is not because we necessarily want to go back to the past we want to go to back to a moment in which we could have made other choices for ourselves 
The other thing he thinks about, though, when he's walking through the streets of Tijuana is all this life and this life surviving and enduring in conditions that are much worse than his own, right? Like his problems are almost nothing compared to the problems of this 11-year-old boy who's trying to sell the virginity of his seven-year-old sister. Next, he goes to a tattoo parlor and he, he kind of wants a tattoo. He doesn't quite know what it is. He thinks maybe he can have a tattoo that says Kathy is dead. And then they're like, well, what does that mean? Kathy's dead of what? And he says Korskow's syndrome, which is the, the disease she, she's going to have that's going to lead her to psychosis and debilitation in future years. And eventually he gives up on getting a tattoo and he goes to a drugstore. And he goes to the drugstore and he, and he buys JJ180 and he and he buys a few caps. It ends up costing like $100, twice what he wanted to pay, but he gets some JJ 180. And he goes back to the hotel, the very hotel room where the Rig was killed, and he rents that room. And he goes in there, and then he takes the drug, right? And he goes ahead to 10 years in the future. He takes enough of the drug, because he, he's gotten good enough to control roughly where he wants to go, and he goes 10 years into the future, and he does it from this hotel room. So he then makes a series of phone calls with various people. He calls Virgil Ackerman, asking about Kathy. He calls his future self, who works for a different company now, and he asks him about Kathy. And he, he talks to several other people. And eventually, I think he even calls Kathy's doctors. And he gets all this information about Kathy's status. And yes, Eric divorces her, keeps a slight eye on her, but basically abandons her to an, an inhuman system of of mental health care. And one thing we learned throughout all this is just how bad off she is. Um, she calls one one person, is this, her, is this the doctor? It might be, he says. She couldn't control herself, her rages, those destructive binges where she'd break everything. They were coming every day, sometimes four times a day. They kept her on phenothazine and it helped. She told them that herself, but finally, no matter how much phenothazine, they gave her it didn't help damage to the frontal lobes i guess and she had difficulty remembering things properly and ideas of reference she thought everything was against her trying to hurt her not grandiose paranoia of course just the never-ending irritability accusing people as if they were cheating her holding out on her she blamed everyone and so he just realizes just how bleak kathy's future is and he, he i think he the final conversation he has with this is his older self and he thinks what to do about this. And, and he decides to commit suicide. So he goes back to the same pharmacy, the same one he bought JJ 180 at 10 years earlier and buys a drug called G-Toxic Blow, which I don't know why it's for sale, but apparently it's a, it leads to a painless and quick death. Um, he's warned you can't buy it, but he ends up buying it anyways. And he plans to, to kill himself sometime in the future, which is kind of a wild idea. So he's about to kill himself and he's wandering the streets of, of Tijuana and he sees these carts. Now these were carts that were made by Himmel very, very early in the story. These were made from those amoebas that can be used to basically replicate anything. Now Himmel is a minor character in the story, but he's like a tech for Tijuana Fur and Dye Corporation. And in the, like the second, first, maybe even the first chapter, I think it is. We learn that he, he takes some of these amoebas and he turns them into these little life forms, these little carts, these little kind of technological devices. And, you know, he kind of, he thinks they have a right to live and, and he kind of sets them free. And 
you know, he doesn't think they're going to live very long, but here they are still alive 10 years later. And they're kind of evolving and they're fighting and they're kind of surviving. And this really moves Eric because it's just another sign of the endurance and the persistence of life in the face of, of, of horrendous conditions. He thinks even these things are determined to live. Bruce was right. They deserve that opportunity, their minuscule place under the sun and sky. That's all they're asking for, and it isn't much, he thought. And I can't even do what they do, make my stand, use my wits to survive in a debris-littered alley in Tijuana. The thing that's taken refuge there is that zinc bucket without a wife, a career, a con app, or money, or the possibility of encountering any of these, still persists. For reasons unknown to me, its stake in existence is greater than mine. And after this, the JJ-180 wears off and he goes back to his, his own time. And so he's back to, I guess it's 2055. And he decides what he's going to do. And he is going to go back to Tijuana Fur and Dye Corporation, hold out with Virgil Ackerman and eventually Gino Molinari, be the resistance to the Lily Star men, you know, bear with that occupation and, and witness the, the victory in the war. All of this is kind of pre-written. So there's not much choice really in it but you know he comes back at a time when just the lily star men have begun the occupation so they start, the ships have come they're already imposing kind of martial law on earth he calls a cab and he says do what i say don't listen to the lily star men and take me to tijuana fur and die corporation and then the, the the cab eventually does this and as they're drive as they're flying away he asks the cab you know what would you do in my situation if if you had a wife who was going to be you know, psychotic and incapacitated and just unable to care for herself, would you, would you take care of her or would you divorce her? Here's his exact question. If you were me and your wife were sick, desperately so, with no hope of recovery, would you leave her or would you stay with her even if you had traveled 10 years in the future and you knew for an absolute certainty that the damage to her brain could never be reversed and staying there with, would mean... And then the, the, the robot driver cuts cuts him off. Actually, it's the cab. I think it's an automated cab, actually, that he's talking to. Cuts him off and says, you know, I would stay with her. And, and Eric agrees that he's going to stay with her. And then the cab says, you know, you're a good man. And that's how the novel ends, uh, taking him to his, to Tijuana Fur and Dye Corporation. Um, and there's not much we need, need to know. I mean, everything else is kind of written what's going to happen. It's, it's going to have a happy ending in the end. Kathy's going to be miserable. But what has happened is that Eric has changed one important part of the timeline, a timeline we haven't experienced yet. And that's the one where Eric Sweetsent decides to stay with Kathy and, and help her do what he can to, to make her life as livable as possible, even though she's facing this debilitating and degenerative illness. So in a way, I think all this stuff about the, the Lily Starman and Gio Molinari, it's all interesting. And it's the politics of this novel, I think are really fascinating. It's a really good window into Dick's ideas about the nature of political power and how it, it does wear masks and it puts on different faces and it's it's you know it's, it may have, like has a solid goal like political power has a goal behind it and in this case it's it's rev, 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 relatively good at least on the half on the on behalf of Gino Molinari the starmen are, are perhaps the same but on the surface there's a kind of fluidity to what political power looks like right so this is where we get this idea that we're all in this black iron prison whatever our political situation might be whether we live in a democracy or a dictatorship we're all kind of in the same bag together i mean that's here even though we got a kind of a good guy in in the mole 
you know, there's going to be other political systems that, that aren't. And this is going to be a major theme of many of his, his later stories. Um, different, different in a way than from the early 1950 tales where we see political power often being shattered and, and we see its fragility. It, it, there's something much more enduring about this. And, and here it's, it's in that device of Gino Molinari able to replace himself so he never actually needs to leave, leave, leave office. So that's important. I think the politics between, you know, of, of getting caught up into this this war by a more powerful ally who, who drags you down with them, the politics of occupation, the necessity of resistance to oppressive political power, it's all there. And these are important themes. Even the drug stuff and the, the time travel stuff is good. And I like it. And it's fascinating to, to read in this particular book. But what this really comes down to is, is this relationship between Eric and Kathy Sweetson, a relationship that most people would abandon and reject, right? When they get when the going gets tough, you know, you you kind of you, you take the easy way out, right? And most of us would do what most of the future Eric's do, which is abandon Kathy. But Dick provides a, another option at the end and that is to is is empathy and support and solidarity for someone he at least once loved and still has still cares for. And it's because it, it's just what the cap says at the end. At the end of the day, we have to face the world that we live in. And it's it's not our choice to create the world. We are fated, right? And we can't resist that. We can't pretend we have control over, over this. And the minute we start doing that, we, we make bad choices. And we, we lose the capacity to really empathize with others. And this is what the cap says. Life is composed of reality configurations so constituted. To abandon her would be to say, I can't endure reality as such. I have to have a uniquely specially e easier conditions. Right? And isn't that what, what all the future Eric Sweetsons have done is created easier circumstances for them. And it's actual that goes actually back to the political choice, right? Do we do we endure the easy choice of just sticking with the Lily Star, even if we might make we lose the war? Or do we make the moral choice, even if it means a decade of occupation by a fascistic power that we have to struggle against? That's the difficult choice, but it's also the, the, the moral one. And, and the easy way out is not the, always the best way to go. That's the lesson of this, of this tale. I think another lesson of this story is not to look backwards too much, to not, not dwell on the past and not regret lost opportunities, because that's another way we, we try to avoid living in the world that we live in, right? We, this nostalgia pulls us into the past. And yeah, when you go to the past, we can find, I could have done this. I, I, you know, maybe I didn't go to college and maybe I should have, or maybe I shouldn't have gone to college. I should have just got a job at a factory, or maybe I should have married someone else. These are, that's, that's dead. Those, those decisions are in the past and they really can't affect us. And one of the dangers of nostalgia is that is it keeps us from, actually making the right choices in our own time. I think that's what Dick's trying to say in this in this novel. And that's why the title is now Wait for Last Year. That's a, that's a bad thing to do, waiting for last year. We need to wait for next year, uh, I think is what he's trying to say. So anyways, I think that, that finishes up my coverage of Now Wait for Last Year. Um, thanks for, for listening and sharing this novel with me. It's actually one of my favorite Philip Dick novels. I like almost every aspect of it. Um, but maybe you have your own opinions about it, so please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I would you know, I'd love to read your thoughts about that. You can also just leave your comments below. So uh, next time, 
I think we'll be looking at the Zap Gun. At least that's the next novel we'll be looking at. There might be some short stories I need to put up first, but I, the next novel we're going to be looking at is is the Zap Gun, which I think was published also in 1966. This this is a interesting story about about consumerism and and games and and the politics of war and all that stuff. We got kind of it's a nice it's a nice Cold War uh, book. It's got some psychedelic weird stuff in it too, but it's I think the heart of it is it's a novel about war and the uses of war and the relationship between kind of a, a war economy and a consumer economy. So that we can look forward to in upcoming episodes. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment for.